This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Jump right into it then. Um, I'm saying jump right into it yet. Yeah, we have been, um, uh, you know, doing a uh, long introduction. But anyways, so let's get started. So tonight, uh, first of all, we want to welcome all our precious Zoom enjoy. Uh, I don't even know what to call it. I should really figure out the right terminology for this. But thank you all for joining. Um, and thank you for all our Torah Anytime for uh, listening into these uh, shiurim. So tonight we are learning Le'ilu Nishmat Avraham Ben Chaim Yehuda and Yechaskel Ben Avraham. Tonight, the purpose of tonight is, uh, and I believe the title is also Skulot, um, to remove suffering. And Bezatashan, tonight I want to go through five skulot, and we, we use that title specifically, skulot, not because it's like, oh, skulot, everybody loves. Skulot, in general, when you're speaking about a segula, people usually think, shortcut, let's do it, you know, how do I not do what I'm supposed to do to still get what I want? That's what I want to do. Give me the shortcut. Um, so, in a sense, there are, we are going to speak about shortcuts, but more importantly, what we're going to discuss is very, very important concepts that are so imperative that it has the ability to make it into a shortcut and thereby removing the suffering that somebody may or may not be undergoing or will have to undergo. So let's start off. We're starting off with a quoting from Rabbi Matisyahu Solomon, who goes and says that in the recent years, um, and he's talking about in his day, in the recent years, there was, you know, we see a great increase in suffering. And, and we could so certainly, you know, um, you, you know, relate to that today. We see uh, suffering in, you know, panasa, in livelihood, in health problems, even in the homes, broken homes, even with children, difficulties with children, uh, the unfortunate, you know, events that we see where you have young parents, mothers or, or fathers that are passing away, leaving, you know, children, um, orphans at home. And we see that there's a lot of suffering that's going on. And we are, you know, we can never fully understand how God runs the world, as much as we try to and as much as we would like to, we can never fully understand. And even, by the way, this is very important, even if we go and we look in the Torah, and the Torah says, if you do this, then this is going to happen. Even when you're looking at that, we're not a prophet to say, you know why this happened? Oh, because I did X, Y, and Z. So we have an inkling, we have an understanding, we have a basic, you know, fundamental of why maybe something is going wrong. But at the end of the day, when you're dealing with God's calculation, we don't know. But we still wonder why. Like, what, what's going on over here? Especially in our day and age, we're not dealing with the consequence of, like, war, of, like, so many casualties of war. There's no major catastrophes, you know, putting aside corona. There's no major, you know, situations that we're going through that it explains why there's so much suffering nowadays. However, when you look at the world, you see that there is tremendous amount of suffering. It's, like, it's common. It's so common that we become... Um, I guess immune to it. It's sort of like you hear of a, of a young child, unfortunately, pass away. Especially during nowadays, I, I can't, you know, emphasize this enough how how careful we have to be during the nine days, where you know you have like, unfortunately, we hear every single year children that are, you know, unfortunately, are swimming in a pool or whatever it is, and and Rahman al there is suffering that goes on, and, and we start to think like, what's going on? Like, why? Why is all this happening? So Rabbi Solomon goes and explains as follows. He brings down from. The Torah and Parshat in, in Shemot, he goes and he says that when God goes and tells Moshe Rabbeinu and he sends him down to Egypt and he says, I want you to go and take the Jewish people out of Egypt. And God gives Moshe Rabbeinu a secret sign so that the Jewish people will be able to accept him. And he gives that, that sign and the Jewish people accept it and they get excited. They get, their hopes are up and like, finally, we're going to get out of this exile. And then what happens? He goes to Paro and he says, let my people go. And what does Paro say? He says, why are you disturbing these people? He's, and not only that, Paul says these people have time to like chat and talk and think about redemption and getting out of here. He says it must be they have time on their hands. So what we're going to do now is that we're going to go and we're not going to give them the amount of bricks that they usually get. And, the, and what they would have to do is now they would have to go and they would have to make their own bricks, but their quotas of the amount of bricks that they have to build will not be reduced. So basically what Paro did when Moshe Rabbeinu came and told him this, Paro just increased the workload by tenfold. So... Now, Moshe Rabbeinu goes and, and he says, he goes to God, he's like, what do you, what did you do over here? Like, God, like, why do you do this to me? Like, why do you do this to the Jewish people? And we see in Shema chapter 5, verse 20, verse 22, it says, God goes to Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm sorry, goes over to God and says, God, why did you cause harm to these people? Why did you send me? 
He says, I thought the whole purpose of this was me to go down to Egypt and take the Jewish people out. But what do I say over here? I go down to Egypt and what's happened? It makes it worse for them. What does God answer a few psukim later? And you see in uh, Shema chapter 6 verse 1, it says, Now you will see what I will do to Paro. The question is, you know, what's, what's going on over here? Why did God do it this way? Why did God do it that he made Moshe Rabbeinu go down? It made it more difficult. And then God says, oh, you see, we want to see what's now going to happen? Like, why did it, why did it happen, have to happen that way? It simply could have happened that Moshe Rabbeinu could have gone down and Paul could have refused and instantly the plague should have started. But why did, did this have to be the suffering state of the Jewish people? So, when you look at uh, the, the following psukim, and actually it's also the previous, there's something very interesting, that there were Jewish supervisors, so there were sort of a, a group of Jewish, um, let's call them just slaves, for what they were, the Jewish slaves, and they were working for Paro, and then overseeing them were Jewish police officers that were overseeing to make sure all the work was done. And above the Jewish police officers, there were the Egyptian taskmasters that oversaw those. Think of it sort of like a business, you know, like you had the lower end, then you have the middle, uh, you know, the um, middle management, then you have the upper management. So the middle managers, which was the Jewish supervisors, they shared in the misery of the Jewish slaves that they were working so hard. And the question of Rabbi Matasei Solomon asks is, why do we need to, like, why is this so important? Why is it so important to know this? So says Rabbi Matasei Solomon, a beautiful, a beautiful, a beautiful understanding. You want to know how people can go and bring an end to their suffering in all circumstances? So in general, we know that if you're going through something bad, so you have to increase your merit. If you're, you're you know, you do tshuva, obviously, you have to increase your merit. But what happens if your merit that you're increasing is insufficient? Maybe the gap between where you need to be and where you are is too great and you don't have enough time, enough ability to, to fill up with that merit. Maybe there is a shortcut. Says Ramatis Yahusam, and he quotes Rav Elia Laplian, and he goes and says there is a shortcut. And what's a shortcut? The Gemara in Shabbat, page 151b, says something so, so important. What an important concept. I'm going to say it first in uh, Aramaic and then we will translate it to English. Kol hamerachem Whoever goes and has mercy on other people, they're going to have mercy on him from heaven. And the Gemara continues, Whoever does not have mercy on people, Heaven does not have mercy on him. Meaning that God, as we know, works measure for measure. Everything God does is measure for measure. So what does that mean? That when you're acting merciful, when you're acting kind to other people, so then God will act kind and merciful to us. So goes Ravelli Lapani, goes, let's go back to what happened over here. Let's see what happened. Moshe Rabbeinu first went down to Egypt. And what happened? At the time of the redemption, there was a problem. The Jewish people needed to be redeemed, but they didn't deserve to be redeemed. They didn't have the merit. We know the Jewish people were in the Memtes Sharei Tumah. They were in the 49th level of Tumah. They were on the lowest level, the lowest level of Tumah. But God wanted to redeem them. So what was God going to do? God had to figure out, I'm going to have to orchestrate, engineer, if I could say, a way, a situation, that the Jewish people should be able to get that merit to be able to get them out. So what did God do? God had to go and, and engineer a situation where the Jewish people could show extreme empathy for the others. And once the Jewish people showed empathy for the others, and then God will show empathy on them, and then God will release them from the slavery in Egypt. So what happened? HaKadosh Baruch Hu went and he caused the bondage of Egypt, the, the, the slavery, to become so intense, so much darker, so much more bitter, that the cause of suffering to increase for one reason. And what was that reason? The reason would be that it would, it would re- result in, in, in individuals and people that have a higher sense like a, of sensitivity. They would start feeling the suffering of their fellow Jews. And when they were starting to feel the suffering of their fellow Jews, this was good, this would go and trigger the merit that they need to be saved from Egypt. So who are these amazing individuals? Says the Torah, these were the Shotrim, these were the police officers, these were the Jewish supervisors, these were the ones that were able to go and save the Jewish nation. So what happened? The, the Jewish police officers um, oversaw, oversaw their, the Jewish slaves. And the quota was raised where, well, I should say the workload was raised where now the Jewish people no longer got the bricks. They had to find the bricks and make the bricks by themselves. And the Jewish police officers were supposed to keep tag. 
you know, like what's going on over here? Who has how many and who is falling short? If someone falls a little short of their bricks, then they will get a little bit of a beating. If they fall a lot, you know, short of their, of their quota, then they will get a great beating. And the Egyptians would go over to these Jewish police officers and says, okay, give us a report at the end of the day, at the end of the week. What's going on over here? How many did the Jews do? How many are there lacking? And the Midrash goes and says that the Jewish police officers would um, refuse to tell the, you know, the Egyptians of who fell short. And they're like, you know, why are you not telling us? We're not going to beat you. He says, you're not held responsible. Whoever, it's the, it's the slaves that are going to be held responsible. You guys just tell us and we're going to go around. You're not going to do any of the beating. We're going to do it. But still the Jewish people refuse. The Jewish police officers refuse to give over their fellow Jews to the Egyptian taskmasters. And what happened? And, and they ended up getting beat for it. And you know what the Jewish police officer said? It says better that we should get beaten for it than the slaves and our Jewish brothers and sisters that they should get bleeding, you know, uh, beaten for it. By this act, of extreme empathy that the Jewish police officers showed to God, this activated God's attribute of extreme empathy as well. And this set the whole exile, the whole, the whole, I'm sorry, the redemption in motion. This set the Yitziat Mitzrayim in motion. This is how Rabbi Eliyahu goes and explains. What did God say? God says, now you shall see what I'm about to do to Paro. Meaning that God had to trigger something. The feelings of the Shotrim, the feelings of the police officers went and triggered the redemption. Now God says, because Moshe Rabbeinu going to God and says, what are you doing? He says, why did you make cause such, such suffering to the Jewish people? And God says, no, you don't understand. Now, now that you see the suffering, now you're going to see what's going to happen. Because the Jewish people did not have the merit that they needed. But now that there was an increase in suffering, this caused the Jewish police officers to go and, and show that empathy that they had. This triggered the God's empathy, gave them the merit that they needed. And all of a sudden, this is what went and allowed the redemption to begin. When we look back in our lives, or throughout history, when you see periods of severe darkness, difficulties, you know what we see usually? It's usually These darkness are usually placed right before redemptions, right before a, a tremendous amount of light. And that's the way that it works, that the very darkness brings out the light. The darkness brings out the dawn. So there are times where... We look in life and we're like, why is God doing that? And by the way, that's these times. It turns around to Seattle Solomon. He says, these are the times that we're li- living at right now. These are dark times. These are difficult times. We see all our brothers and sisters, all our, uh, you know, the Jewish nation going through so much suffering. An unusual, unusual amount of suffering. So how does Ramat Seattle Solomon goes and explains it? He says that our generation apparently has not received, has not accumulated enough merit to earn the redemption. So what happens? God wants Mashiach to come. God wants the redemption to happen. So God has given us the key. And that key is darkening our world, making difficulties in our world. And we cannot help but see, everywhere we turn, there's always, there's more people suffering, there's more difficulties. There's, you know, unfortunately we just get, you know, hopefully we're just getting out of Corona. And who knows what the future has to show, hopefully, you know, it'll be only good. But we're looking at it, we're looking at, it's, it's a difficult situation that we're dealing with. And what, what, why is that? Because this is the key that God gives us. God gives us the key that we should go, and God's saying, you have to go and step up to the plate, start having empathy, start caring for your brothers and sisters, start saying, what's going on to my, to, to my fellow Jewish brothers and sisters that they're going through so much suffering? And when we release that, when we have that feeling of, that emotion of empathy for our fellow Jews, that triggers God to have empathy on us, and that will in turn trigger the redemption. Explains Ramat Haseo Salman that suffering is not always a punishment. Suffering can also signal the opening of the gates of mercy to help us get something that we have. So this is the first skula that we spoke about. The first skula is have mercy on other people, and Hashem will have mercy on you. You want to get out of your suffering? You want to get out of your difficulties? Start worrying about other people. You know, it's very, and it's not easy, by the way. When somebody goes through difficulties, it's very hard to see other people's difficulties. Because when you're in suffering, when you're in pain, you can't, you know, you're in your pain. Like when someone's stomach is really hurting them, they can't start thinking, okay, maybe, you know, my back is hurting me also. But if the severe pain is in the stomach, that's all you feel. So if you're going through very, very difficult suffering, it's very hard to stop for a second and be like, you know what? Like other people are also going through it. And like, God, you know, forget about me for a second, but what about my fellow brothers and sisters? Let's go to number two. When we look at number two, the Zohar in Bereshit goes and says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has mercy on a person. And what does God do 
when he has mercy on a person? So God sends him a gift. What is the gift? God will send him a poor person or somebody who is in need of something that this person can feel compassion and they will go and help him out. And the second that you help out somebody else, all of a sudden now you deserve help as well. So let's say somebody is in need of a big salvation, a big Yeshua, but he's undeserving. So God orchestrates an opportunity that this person will be able to go and be able to have that merit for, for a Yeshua, for a salvation. As we see in Tehillim, chapter 41, verse 2. It says, Ashrei maskil eldal biyom ra'a Praiseworthy is one who looks after the poor, because on the day of disaster, on the day of calamity, that's when God will rescue him. Meaning that when a person is experiencing his own troubles, but he gives his time and money to other people, then Hashem will surely have mercy mercy on him. There's such an important act of chesed. There was um, a major askan, someone who deals a lot with the public and helps a lot with the public in uh, in London. And um, this is going in the time when the Chafetz Chaim was still alive. It's, uh, you know, prior to World War One. He goes and he decides, you know, he needs to go and he asks the Chafetz Chaim, the Gadol Adol, the greatest rabbi of the generation, he wanted to ask him a question. And the question that he asks is that he's so involved in public work that it sort of takes away from his home life, you know. So what he wants to go and ask the Chafetz Chaim, he says, you know, maybe I should reduce the amount of help that I'm doing to the public, and then I'll be able to focus more on my family. So he goes over, the. at that time, the Chafetz Chaim was staying by uh, a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Akiva Schreiber. He was hosting the Chafetz Chaim. And um, he asked this Rabbi Schreiber, he says, you know, can I please join you in some sort of meal that I could maybe ask the Rav, the, ask the rabbi, this, uh, this, you know, my question. So he said, fine, come for on this and this day for breakfast. So this guy comes in for breakfast, and before this Askan, this this uh, person who helps the public a lot, before he's able to talk, the Chafetz Chaim goes and starts and recites a Pasuk in Tehillim, chapter 23, verse 6. And he says over there, David the Melech says, Ach tov Translation is, may only goodness and kindness pursue me all the days of my life. Ask the Chafetz Chaim. Why does David Amelach use the word Yildifuni? Yildifuni is pursue. It's something that, that's used to describe troubles. You know, pain, suffering, afflictions. Not, not something good. So why is David Amelach going and saying, yildifuni. Let only goodness and kindness chase after me. We should use a different, maybe, a vernacular, different, different terminology. So the Chafetz Chaim goes and answers like this. And he says that, the kindness that this person does takes place the troubles that he would have to endure. Meaning that this person is going through difficulties now because he's helping so many people. But that difficulty is not for naught. What's going to be with that difficulty? This person has to go through a certain amount of suffering. So what happens is that if someone now goes and is working very hard, he's on phone calls late at night, he's going and he's giving a lot of his money to other people and he's trying to help people out, he's trying to make connections, whatever it is, he's trying to help Jewish nations, he's trying to help clients, he's trying to help the world. And he's, it's difficult. He's losing time from his family, from his business, from so on and so forth. And, and, you know, what, what am I supposed to do? You know, should I continue? Should I not? Says the Chafetz Chaim. Says when somebody has to go through suffering, if he goes and he's helping other people, that's also, he's also going through difficulties. He's also going through suffering. You know what happens? That takes place of the suffering that he would have to go. Meaning that now, because he is going and he is helping other people and he is having difficulties in it, that replaces the suffering that he would have to do. And this is the concept that we spoke about before, that, you know, people do, unfortunately, sins that is, let's say, the sins of karet. And they want, and they want to do tshuva. And part of the, 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 the Rambam goes and explains this in Elchot Tshuva, that part of the, the tikkun process for removing that sin of karet is the person has to go through suffering. But the question is, is there a way to get out of that suffering? And this is something we spoke about before. And the answer is yes. That if you go and you're doing mitzvot and you're learning Torah and you're suffering, it's going difficult for you, but you keep on doing it, you know what happens? That takes away from the suffering that you would have to do. Rabbi Saul Salanter brings down a mashal that there was once a person who committed a terrible crime. And he went to court. They caught him. They went to, he went to court and they convicted him. He was going to spend many, many years in prison. And uh, they sentenced him to prison. But the family started begging the lawyers. He's like, you got to make an appeal. We're going through Tumat. And the lawyer is like, there's nothing that's going to happen. He's guilty. It's like very obvious. And they said, no, no, no. We got to make the appeal. We got. We want to present our our side of the story. So the lawyer says, fine, you know, I'll try. He puts the appeal. And the, the court decides that they're going to hear what the family, the friends, whatever it is that they want to say. So they come to the appeal. 
and all of a sudden you hear, you know, the this this criminal's parents, his elderly parents come in and they start testifying and say, you know, this is our son. And he was our sole support. He supported us. Because I understand that maybe he did something wrong, but why do we have to suffer? The parents. You know, how are we going to go and live on? You know, how are you going? But you're taking him and putting him in prison. We're getting suffer. We're, we're suffering as well. And then the wife comes on and she says, why is it if my husband did something wrong that me and my children have to suffer? Who is going to go and support us? He says, is this fear? And one relative after another says, what's going on over here? He says, just because he did something wrong, we have to suffer? Now, of course, the court's not going to be like, oh, yeah, what are we going to do? He says, if he's guilty, he's guilty. You know, the, the, there is an injustice to the justice system, that, but that's the way that the world works. The justice system is faulty. But when you're talking about God, the way that God judges and the way that God, you know, takes out that judgment in this world, nobody innocent is going to be hurt by that sentence. Meaning that God's justice is in different nature. If a Kaddish Baruch Hu, if God inflicts suffering on someone and God's actions are perfect, that means that if that person is going through suffering, that means that everybody else around him or her that has resulted in that suffering is also due that suffering. Meaning no one gets undue suffering. Says Ravelio Laplan. He goes and he says, according to this, it will be so worthwhile for you to have a lot of friends. It would be so worthwhile for have, to, to have a lot of people love you. It would be so worthwhile, and this is the most important part, that you have a lot of people rely on you. You want to know why? Because this is going to get you through the judgment day. This is going to get you through any judgment. Because if, let's say, you're guilty of some transgression, and now God is going to have to go and give you some sort of punishment, but now God's going to have to be forced to take into consideration all your friends, your family, and everybody who relies on you. And if they do not deserve to be punished, then you don't deserve to be punished. And you're not going to be able to be punished. I want to share with you a beautiful story that Rabbi Lezer Parkov brings down. There was once a boy, young boy, very smart, like a genius. And the, you know, his, all the rabbis, all the parents, this guy is going to come huge in the Torah. He is so, so enthusiastic, he understands it so clearly. He, he's, a, he's a blessing to have in the class. So, with this such good, you know, um, you know, feelings from, from his rabbis, he really, really did excel. And he got accepted to one of the finest high schools in Israel. And he would, you know, in there, they, this particular high school, he would dorm. And he would come home once a month. And the mother was so proud of her son. Did so much, such a bright son, using his, his wisdom, using his, um, you know, his abilities for such good, that she would go, every time he would come in, she would pamper him, his favorite food, his favorite, everything that he wanted, he got. One morning, at four in the morning, the parents get a phone call. And four in the morning phone call, never good. They get a phone call, and they, you know, it's the police on the other line, and they say, you know, there, there was an accident, and their son was injured. They're like, an accident? It's four in the morning. What do you mean? He's like, you know, just, just come to the hospital. They rush to the hospital, and the details come out that, you know, the boys, you know, there was a bunch of boys in the yeshiva, all underage, none of them have a license. They went and decided to, uh, you know, go driving. And unfortunately, they got into a severe accident, and the driver was killed. And their son, which his name was Aryeh, he was, you know, like, he, he was sitting right next to, right by the driver's seat, and he was, you know, severely, you know, injured. And, you know, when all this came out, the parents were decided, like, you know, how are we supposed to relate to this? Like, you know, he's such a good kid. Like, what happened? Why is he, how did he fall into this, this situation? But they decided, you know, that Mount, he lost a dear friend. He also had, you know, emotional pain, physical pain. He was going through so much, they decided they're not going to probe on this. But they noticed that the accident affected him. The accident affected their son, Arya. He was becoming distant. He was becoming, you know, further away, not only from the family, but also from Yiddishkeit, also from the, from the Jewish, you know, you know um, living. And then one day, Arya comes to his parents and he says, you know, I'm leaving the house. Uh, you know, I, I see that I'm causing you too much aggravation. He says, I'm leaving yeshiva, I'm leaving the house. I've chosen a different path in my life. And he went, as much as the parents tried to beg him, he was not listening. He went to live on some kibbutz in, in Israel. Two months after he leaves the house, the the father, which was a rabbi, he had an opportunity came into his onto his uh, table, and that was it was a new kollel that was opening up in Hong Kong. Now this um, when this happened, this is when Hong Kong was um, you know 
there was not much Jewish, you know, Orthodox communities going on. And now there's a little bit more. But back then you had, you know, Sephardi businessmen usually traveling over there. So there was a small Jewish community over there. And they wanted to bring this rabbi from Israel to Hong Kong for like sort of a two-year contract that he would be able to go and teach the people. Um, and not only that, the, the, for the rabbits and for the wife, they would also provide a job so she would have an income as well. So the rabbi goes over to his wife and he says, you know, listen, this opportunity came up. What do you think that we go for two years to Hong Kong? So the wife goes and says, but what about our son, Aryeh? He's in a kibbutz. So the, the father, the rabbi says, what are we supposed to do? He left already. He's not, he's not the, you know, he's, he's obviously not interested in coming back. So they decided what would be best for them is to go to Hong Kong for two years. And they go and they pack up and they leave. Now, the wife you know, decided that this is what she's going to, she's, her focus now is going to be like helping the Jewish community. And that was the husband also. That's what the husband, they would go and they would invite people for Shabbat and he would spend hours with his guests. You know, people over there weren't so religious. So he explained about Shabbat, explained about Torah, explained about all different halachot and what the purpose of it, the beauty of Judaism. And the wife saw this and she says, she got very inspired. She says, you know what? I'm also going to do this. And she went full force and also decided to do Kiruv. She also decided to do Kiruv Chokim, tried to bring the Jewish people closer to God, closer to the Torah. One Sunday, the wife was going out in the marketplace and she, she notices there was a, a boy and a girl, a brother and sister that were selling something in the marketplace. And she noticed them, that, you know, from the area, they, you know, they were Jewish people, not religious, but they were Jewish. So she goes over to them. She says, you know, what are you guys doing there? They were like teenagers. So they said one word, money. <laughs> we're trying to make some money. So the wife goes and says, listen, she says, you know, I see you're selling a lot of beautiful things over here. What if I buy a tremendous amount of your merchandise, a tremendous amount of your product? Will you come to us for a Shabbat meal? And they said, you know, for that, of course, get, you know, a lot, a big sale and get a free meal. We're in. So they came that Friday night. The brother and sister came to the, that Friday night to this rabbi and the rabbitson's house for the meal. And the, the rabbi was talking and the rabbitson was talking and they were trying to inspire them. And the boy which was name was Yitzchak, he was very inspired. He was like, you know, completely enveloped. The girl, on the other hand, you know, she wasn't feeling it so much. And after the meal, the girl goes into to the um, to the hosts and they say, listen, we appreciate what you did, uh, but, uh, you know, here's where I bid you goodbye. The boy, Yitzchak, on the other hand, he sort of became connected and he became connected to the rabbi and he started coming to learn with the rabbi and he started coming to the meals, more and more meals on Shabbat to the, you know, to the rabbi and the wife. And after a while, he became so connected that he sort of became part of the family. And the meanwhile, this boy is 15 years old. He's a high, he lives in Hong Kong, and the parents are like, where are you going all this time? And they're like, oh, I'm going to this rabbi's uh, you know, house for the meals. So they said, what, you're go- so we would like to uh, meet with uh, this rabbi that you're visiting so often. So they meet with the rabbi, and they were also very impressed. They said, you know what, we would appreciate we we were very happy that our son is spending his time with you and not with his friends hanging out in the street so they were they approved of the situation and after this point you know Yitzchak over here was a regular at the table and the husband the rabbi spent so much time investing to Yitzchak two years go by the contract is over and now there it's time for them to go back to Israel but Yitzchak is like, he's like, I don't want to leave you. I grew so much from you. I learned so much. It's like, what, are you going to leave now and I'm not going to have that anymore? So he was very adamant. He says, I want to go to Israel. I want to come with you. And Yitzchak's parents, he spoke to his parents and Yitzchak's parents went and they, and they spoke to the, you know, to the rabbi and his wife. And he says, listen, our son is very adamant. We're very impressive with what you've done. We're okay with going if you're, you know, able to go and uh, watch over him in Israel. So the wife, she sort of wanted to laugh. She's like, you want me to wife your son? It's like, you, you know, I'll take care of your son, but where's my son? Some kibbutz somewhere? But she didn't say anything, and she, they said, fine, yeah, we'll take care of your son. And the son went with them, Yitzhak went with them, and they put him into a Baal Tshuva Yeshiva, and, they, and, and there he thrived. Meanwhile, they get back to Israel, they settle in, and now the husband and wife, they try to locate their son. They haven't seen their son, Arya, in two years. So they located where, he's, where he lives, and they went and they drove down there. But he was so he was still such in a bad state that he would refuse to meet with his own parents. He refused to meet them. So they didn't want to push anything then and they left it alone. Two additional years passed by. And one, you know, at this point in time, Yitzchak, the boy from Hong Kong, he became part of the family. He picked up on Hebrew, he was speaking Hebrew very well, and he was learning very well. He became part of the family. In fact, the parents shaped so much nachat, so much, so much enjoyment from this from this boy. And then the holiday of Sukkot approached. And Yitzchak, the boy who came from Hong Kong, informed, you know, his, you know, I guess call him foster parents at this point in time, that he's going up on a tour up north. He said, fine, enjoy. Erev Simchat Torah, he comes home. And they noticed something was off with him. 
and they tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't say anything. He remained very quiet. Nothing happened. They couldn't, they couldn't figure out what was going on. Three months passed by. All of a sudden, three months later, there's a knock on the door. They open up, and the mother shrieks. There is standing their long, long son, Yitzchak. And he goes in, and they start talking, and all of a sudden, Yitzchak comes in. And now they now they start plugging things together. This is where Ayah, the son, starts giving a, you know starts saying the story. He says, you know, three months ago, Yitzhak came out on a trip to up north, and I, you know, he came there and I was a tour guide. Says says uh, says Arya, their son, and I was starting to you know become friendly with all my customers and I was speaking to him and they, you know this Yitzhak was saying you know he's from really from originally from Hong Kong and now he's about Shuva and now he's living with the Man family. And he's like, wait, the Mon family? That's, a, that's my name. That's the Mon family. And all of a sudden, you know, Ar- you know, Arya, the son's like, wait a minute. Did they, like, replace me? Like, what happened over here? I left. They found another kid and they brought him into the house. And it sort of, like, gave him a little bit into shock. And Yitzhak, the other, on the other hand, was also shocked. He says, here's a non-religious boy standing right in front of him. The son of his adopted, you know, family and that, that are so religious. It, was, it just, like, blew him away. Like, he didn't know how to, how to process it. So... Yitzchak, the boy from Hong Kong, decided that I'm going to do something else. He says, I'm going to return the favor that your, that their parents, that his parents did to him. And he decided for the next three months, he spent a lot of time with the boy Aryeh. And Yitzchak at this point in time was two years already in yeshiva. He was, you know, a very good learner. He knew a lot. And he was basically spending a lot of time learning with the son Aryeh, trying to bring him closer to God. And eventually it started working. He got into the point that Aryeh was willing to go home to his parents. And eventually he became, you know, he came fully back home and Bokh Hashem, he became fully religious. And when the mother was saying over this story, she had an album and in the album over there, she has over there, here you see that we are dancing at Yitzchak's wedding and here right next to her, we're dancing at Arya's wedding. He said, Yitzchak today, the boy from Hong Kong, is living a religious life. He has seven children and you know what the mother said? He says, he's considered our son in every single way. And what's even more beautiful is that him and Arya are blood brothers, heart and soul together. They're 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 connected. It, you know, he was able, this boy from Hong Kong was able to go and bring back their lost long, their long lost son that they weren't able to do anything. You want to know what the power of chesed is? The power of chesed is that when you go and you help someone else, you don't really see it always, but you're really helping yourself. Here you see a family that went to Hong Kong and they took in this boy, even though that their own boy was out in the kibbutz somewhere in Israel. But they decided they're going to help someone else. But you know what? They were really helping themselves because the help that they gave to that boy really came, circled back and helped their own son bring him back to them. This is skula number two. Chesed. Increase your chesed. The more that you increase your chesed, that will be able to get you out of your suffering. Let us move to skula number three. There's a story in the Garden of Imuna that, bring, that it brings down that there was once a young lady, very successful, beautiful young lady, comes from a very respected family. She ended up, you know, finding a chatan from also a very respected family, very wealthy family. And they lived together. They were blessed with children. They were blessed with wealth. They were blessed with happiness. They were blessed with really everything. And, you know, they really used their blessings for good. Like the, my, the wife, which was a very modest, she would go and she would be a great mother and she would help the community. She would, you know, help with the organizations. The husband at that point in time gave a significant amount of charity. He also spent a lot of time, you know, learning to He also spent a lot of time praying. And everything was just like, they were known as like, that's the couple. You know, like they're like a good couple, like amazing couple. Do so much good. Then one unfortunate day, there was a drunken soldier that came and went and found their three-year-old son. And this soldier went abused, mutilated, and ended up murdering this couple's three-year-old son. And unfortunately, at the funeral, thousands of people joined this funeral and joined in the morning. But they started asking, is this what the couple deserves? Look at this amazing couple. They do so much for the public. They're so righteous. They give so much charity. This is what they deserve. What did this little child have to do? Why did this little child have to suffer so severely? So what happened? Some people, this caused them to lessen, to weaken their emunah. And the couple, on the other hand, they reacted with this with total emunah. They accepted this as a divine decree and they continued their righteous lifestyle. They continued giving, do, you know, giving them a lot of charity. They continued doing chesed, continued learning to and praying. They continued everything that they were doing. But a short period goes by and all of a sudden this merchant, this successful, you know, tzaddik of a merchant, he falls deathly ill. And they send all the doctors, the best doctors, but the doctors, they gave up hope. They said, it's, it is only a matter of time. 
And unfortunately, a few days later, the merchant, you know, returns his soul to heaven. Now you have over here the additional mourning on this family. This is the tears of a young 35-year-old widow. This tore the community apart. They'd be like, why does so much bad happen to this amazing family? And the widow never could have, you know, she never really got out of it. Years passed by. She had a, a married son that, you know, would come visit her. And he says, you know, you know, mother, like, what, what's going on? He's like, you, you got to... You know, you got to lift up your spirits because every time you would see her, she would burst out into tears. She would constantly be crying over the loss of her husband, over the loss of her child. And the son goes and says, you know, mother, the, so many years have passed by. He says, we don't know God's consideration. We don't know God's plan. But we know that everything that God does is for the best. He says, the son goes over to the mother and says, you know, you know, mommy, when you go, when you cry, it not only saddens us and it hurts us, your children, but it also saddens our father's soul. He's suffering also. Why do you have to go? So many years has passed by. You have to go move on. So many sh- matchmakers, so many Shatchanim went and they were chasing after you. It's time to move on with your life. So after her speech from her son, she decided that she's going to make a, a strong change in her life. She's going to go and she says, you know what? I always trusted in God. She says, why shouldn't I be happy? And you know what? That night she decided, she, she switched, turned the switch in her, in her mind and she decided she's going to become a happy person, a new person. And for the first time, in many, many years, this widow slept so well, so peacefully. That night she had a dream. And in the dream, she's in this exotic, amazing, beautiful garden. There's so much beauty. There's so much beautiful, you know, scenery that's going on. And all of a sudden, an old man walks up to her. And she, all of a sudden, she clicks and she realizes that this is, no, this is not this world. She's in the next world over here. And this old man with a long white beard goes over to her and says, Would you like me to show you your deceased husband? And she's like, She's like, yeah, please. And she brings him into a place where you see this, this young man. He's going and he's giving a Torah lecture to thousands of elderly righteous people. So she walks up and she sees it's her husband. And she says, you know, my dear husband. She says, what's going on over here? She says, first of all, she asks, why did you leave me? You left me alone in such an early stage in our lives. And, and secondly, he says, what are you, a teacher over here? You are a merchant. I mean, you are a tzaddik, you are a righteous man, but you were never like a rabbi, a teacher like, to this extent. So the husband goes and says, you know, in a former life, I was a great scholar. But the problem was I never married. And when I died and I went up to heaven, they told me that I can't assume my designated place because I did not fulfill the first commandment of the Torah, go and have children, be fruitful and multiply. So I was given the opportunity to be reincarnated again. For one purpose, my sole purpose of coming down to this world is for marrying and having children. And he says, once I went and I completed, completed my tikkun, my soul was corrected. There was no longer a reason for me to remain down in this world. So therefore, I died young. So then the wife goes and says, but I have another question. So what about our little son? She says, why did our son have to die so young, so, so difficulty? So the husband responds and says, you know, our son was a very, very high, righteous person with a high-level soul. Huge tzaddik. In a previous life, he was kidnapped at birth and he was raised by non-Jewish people. Until the age of three, the family was able to go and redeem him. And then he, be, you know, later became, ended up becoming a great chacham, a great sage in the Jewish, uh, in the Jewish world. But he was left with a little bit of a blemish that, you know, he was raised by non-Jews for the first few years of his life. So his correction, his tikkun was that he would be returned in this world and he'd be raised by, for, with, you know, for three years by a righteous, upright Jewish woman. And he says, you, my dear wife, were granted that privilege of being that woman. So the wife says, fine, I understand the, you know, the, the calculations, but why did his death have to be so horrible? Why did he have to go through so many difficulties? So the husband responds and says, you know, he was destined to die anyways. That's what the court has decreed. The, the heavenly court has decreed. But unfortunately, there was another decree as well. And that was there was a decree. There were so many sins happening in our town that there was a decree that there was supposed to be a pogrom. There was supposed to be a very, very severe you know, situation in our town where many, many of its inhabitants will be destroyed. But our righteous little child, our soul, this righteous soul, he volunteered to have a terrible death as an atonement for the entire town. And he went and he sanctified himself as sort of a public sacrifice so the town doesn't have to go through other, for, through any other severe difficulties. And you should know that because of this, he reached such a high level in the next world that nobody is allowed to go and enter that level except for me because I'm his father. And he goes and he says, when your time comes, you will also be allowed to, to enter that, that area. And then the father goes, and this is the point of the story. And he says, and you should know that only by the virtue 
of your reinforced emunah was I revealed to you. He says, as long as you are in a cloud of sadness, a cloud of depression, a cloud of difficulty that you are harboring in your heart, I couldn't come to you. And in fact, you almost lost another child. And as I tried, I had I gave so many requests that I wanted to be revealed to you and I wanted to explain to you, but it was all refused. Because my tikkun was over, but you have so much more to do. So, but now with your, your revivement of this reinforcement of this emunah, this gave me the ability to be able to go and explain to you this. And now I want to tell you, my dear wife, you st- my tikkun is over, but you still have a lot more to do. He says, go and remarry, have a life of emunah, have a life of joy, and you will be very successful. You know, and that, with that, you know, she wakes up. When she woke up, her life has changed. This, you know, completely changed her mindset. Pasuk in Tehillim, chapter 32, verse 10. It says, One who trusts in God, the the chesed, the mercy will surround in it. Rabbi Victor Miller goes and explains something very beautiful. When God spoke to Avraham, and God told Avraham, your reward is very great. Abraham says, you know, you know, he expresses grief. He had, you know, I was like, that's nice, but I don't have any children. And Abraham goes and says, no matter how successful you're going to make me in this world, it will not mean anything to me if I'm not going to be able to have a child in this world. He wanted somebody to go and carry on his name, carry on his ordeals, carry on his ideals, more, more to say. So what did God say? God says, no, 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 you're going to have children. You're going to have many, many descendants. What does the Pasuk say after that? In Bereshit chapter 15, verse 6, the, the Torah testifies, it says, V'hemin ba'ashem. And Avraham Avinu trusted in God. And what does it say afterwards? V'yachshav lo And God counted this emunah of Avraham Avinu as, 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 tzedakah, as like righteousness. He earned, meaning he earned tremendous amount of merit from his emunah that he had in God. Now let's try to understand this. Avraham Avinu, waited a very, very, very long time to have a kid. And he wanted a kid specifically with Sarah. Sarah was very great and he knew that together they would be able to produce a, a wonderful offspring. And eventually, after a very long time, they were blessed with a child. And Yitzchak, he was a beautiful boy, really went in the, the footsteps of his father and his mother. And he was a Ben Zekonim, he was loved by his parents. They gave him everything, everything to Yitzchak. And then suddenly God tells Avraham, go, and bring your son as a korban, as an offering to me. Now, when we're reading the story in the Torah, we know that Yitzchak wasn't going to get slaughtered, so we're like, okay, we're not, you know, we're not like, sure, like, what's happening, you know, cliffhanger, like, what's going to be with this situation? We know that Yitzchak is going to get out. But back then, Abraham was bringing his son Yitzchak, he thought that he was going to go, and his son is going to die, and he's going to lose his son. Like, that was the, le- that was his mindset. That's what, that's, you know, that's, that's what the, the, let's call it, that's what the cards showed. So, the question Rabbi Victor Mill asks says, so he goes and he brings his son for Koban. And we say this is a greatest test for, you know, one of the greatest, you know, things that Abraham did. Says Rabbi Victor Miller, what's so great about this? You know, during that time, there was many sacrifices, human sacrifices that happened. So, what's so exceptional about Abraham? And the answer is, is that there is a very, very big difference on how an act is performed. That when Abraham was ready to perform this act, this sacrifice, he was doing it with complete love to God. Complete ahavat Hashem, complete love to God. He was going, even though he was the most difficult trial that he was, that he was going through, but nonetheless, he, he trusted in God. He says, listen, you know, like, whatever God says, that's what I'm going to do. A man, explains Rabbi Victor Miller, can give his life for God. But at the same point in time, he can have a little bit of reservations, be like, you know, like, maybe he does something, but then he's like, he feels a little bit bad about what he did. The good thing, he did something good, but he feels a little bit bad about it. Maybe he feels a lot bad about what he did. And he says, you know, like, why did this happen to me? Why did I do this? Couldn't I live my life and maybe serve God the same level, but with peace and happiness? He still, he was ready to do everything for God. But the emotion was like, you know what, I wish it could have been a little bit better. I wish it could have been this way. Maybe I didn't have to go through this amount of suffering. When Avraham, when he got rewarded for giving his son, he was not rewarded for the, for the mere act of bringing his son for sacrifice. He was rewarded for his trust in God, his level of his happiness that he was able to go with this. Now people go through disasters and suffering in life. Says Rabbi Victor this is a great, unfortunately, we don't want it, but this is a great opportunity. It's not so much about the disaster, but it's how we react to it. 
The disaster can turn out to be your greatest success. It depends on how you relate to it. This is how you live with Amunah. When you live with Amunah, that is making your, your, your troubles, your difficulties to a great amount of success. Because you're going and saying, you know what, whatever God does for the best, I accept it. That woman that we said in the previous story, she was able to get out of her salvation. Why? Because of Amunah. Avaham, his reward was what? Because of Amunah. Skula number three, to get rid of your suffering, is Amunah. Live your life with Amunah. Live your life with happiness. That everything, everything that God does, God does for the best. That's Skula number three. Let us go to Skula number four. There is a Pasuk in Tehilim, chapter 25, verse 23. It says, It says that you should go and throw your burden up to God, and He will sustain you. The Magid of Duvna goes and explains, in a mashal, there was a famous, famous story. There was a poor man traveling, and he had a very big, heavy bag with tremendous, weed very much in him. And he was carrying it, and meanwhile, there was a wealthy man with a very large carriage who was driving past by, and he sees this poor man. He was holding this, like, tremendous bag, was weighing him down, his back was hurting him, he was going through so much trouble. He says, you know, my dear friend, why don't you come? Where are you headed to? I'm going to give you a lift. So the young, the, the poor man is so thankful. He gets onto the, to the carriage and he's sitting over there and he's holding onto his, uh, onto his heavy backpack. And, you know, the, initially the wealthy man, you know, is giving the ride. He's not saying anything. But after a while, he goes over to this poor man and says, listen, I have to ask you. He says, why are you holding your backpack? So put it down on the floor over there. Like, why? You know, I, I see that you're in pain. You see that you're in suffering. You know, like, what, just put it down. And the poor man goes and says, listen, you know, my dear friend, you know, you're doing me such chesed over here. You're taking me so far. He says, what am I going to make you carry my bag also? He says, no, you're bringing me to my destination. I'm going to carry my bag. So the wealthy man goes and says, you know, you fool. He, well, I didn't, he didn't say fool. He was doing chesed. He says, well, you know, like, whether you're holding it or whether it's on the wagon, it doesn't matter. My horses are pulling the weight regardless of what you're doing it. Take it off your back. Put it on the floor. It's the same weight. It's not changing. You're not removing anything. Says the Dubin the Market. We have to realize that God is carrying us through our, through our lives. If we go and we hold all our baggage with us, we hold all our difficulties with us, you think that's going to change anything? You think that's going to make anything? God is already giving us the ride. Put the bag down and God is going to take us on the ride and, you know, continuing. The Midrash in Tehillim goes and explains that God is not like a human being. What is a human being? You go to, you know, a friend, a good friend. You have a favor that you want to ask him. And you ask him for the favor and he does it with such happiness and he's like, of course I'll do it. You're my best friend. I'll do anything for you. And he does him this chesed, this kindness. Now, there's a few months go by, you have another need for this friend. You go back to this friend. You say, listen, you helped me out so much last time. Can you please help me out again? And he says, yeah, of course. You're my best friend. Of course, I'll help you. A little bit less enthusiasm. And he helps him out. What do you think is going to happen the third, fourth, fifth, fifteenth time, twentieth time, twenty-fifth time? How is this person going to feel like, you know, when he's going and he's asking his best friend, hey, by the way, can you help me out? Now his best friend's going to be like, and initially he was so excited he'll help you out, but eventually after 450 times of him giving you money or him going and helping you out, eventually he's going to get a little bit fed up with it. That's the way that human people work, unfortunately. But God doesn't work that way. If you go and you ask for God for something and you get it, or you don't get it, it doesn't matter, you ask for it, and then a short while goes by and you ask for God for something else. And you keep on asking for God 450 times. You think God's going to be like, what's with this guy already? I gave him so much already. Just leave me alone. So it doesn't work that way. The Midrash goes and says, the Pasuk in Tehillim, chapter 145, verse 18, it says in Tehillim, God is close to all who call out to Him. Meaning that more that we ask of God, the more that He loves it. It's not going to say, oh, how many times are you going to ask me? How many times are you going to bother me already? No, no, no. The more that you ask, the more appreciated, the more that God enjoys that. People sometimes think, you know, I don't want to bother God. You know, someone's driving and they want to go and find a parking spot and be like, you know what? Like, should I ask God for a parking spot? You know, let me save it. Let me save, you know, when you got to go and you ask someone for a favor, you want to make sure you utilize it to the best of your ability and say, you know what? I'll ask God. No, no, no. Ask God for everything from the smallest thing from a parking spot, which if you live in Brooklyn, it's a huge thing, but, or, or like, I don't know, buying you a mansion with, you know, the cake, whatever it is that you want in your life. You know, you could ask God for everything or and anything. There's no problem because God is taking you through the life anyway. Stop holding on to your luggage. Put it down. God is taking you anyways. Start talking to God. You want to know what's the fourth skula? The fourth God to get out of the suffering? Three words. Davin, Davin, Davin. Translation. Pray, pray, pray. Speak to God. God is there waiting for you. 
Don't think that you're bothering God. God is there waiting for you. You want to get out of it? Talk to God. Talk to the one who gave you these problems. There is a reason what's going on. Just talk, go and dive in. That's number four. Let's look at the final and fifth one. Rav David Asher goes and brings down a pasuk in Shemot, chapter 6, verse 5. It says that God goes and says, And I also, gam, I also heard the moans, the, the, the pains of the children of Israel, the Jewish people. Asks the Sefer Ki Ata'imadi. Why did God say also? What's go- Who else is listening over here? Like what's God says, I also heard the screams and the cries of the Jewish people. Who else is in on this uh, screams and cries? And the answer is that the people themselves heard each other's groans, heard each other's suffering. When a Jew over there saw the pain of his friend, he wished that this friend could have it easier. When Hashem says, oh, you want you know, him to have it easier, I also want to be included in this. And I also came in this. Says the Gemara in Bava Kama, page 92a. It says, whoever prays on the behalf of his friend, he will be answered for first. Now, this is not something magic, magical, like a trick. This is a merit. This is an exceptional merit that a person, when you empathize with someone else, especially if someone else has that same problem, you know, the reason why this is so important, let's say you're going through something very difficult. And you know the difficulty of what it is. And you go and you want somebody else to say, you know what, I don't want anybody else to go through the suffering that I went through. And you sincerely want that other person to go and succeed and get out of the suffering. There is such a merit in that. And you should know that there's different reactions that people have when they're going through suffering and other people are, are also going through suffering. So one reaction will be, let's say somebody is an older single and they're trying to get married. And or they could be, let's say they're trying to have children, or maybe they're trying to make money. And all of a sudden they hear another older single that got married. Or this woman, then couple had tried to have children for a long time and finally they were blessed with a child. This businessman just closed a huge deal and made a tremendous amount of money. So some people feel worse about this. Be like, why then? What happened to me? When is my turn? Like why, you know, like why why can I have that same success? The ideal response, the correct response, and what this is what some people think of also is like Bauch Hashem. I am so happy that they are getting out of their suffering. I know what that suffering is like. I know what they're going through. I'm so happy that they're not going through it anymore. You know what it's a, a skula is over here? That you show that you want other people to have that happiness that you're lacking. The Maya Chaim brings down a story. There was once a couple that they were married for many years without any children. And they went over to the rabbi and says, you know, rabbi, can you help us? We don't have children for so many years. So the rabbi goes and says, you know, go find another couple and pray for another couple who also can't have any children, who have not been blessed with children. So they said, fine. And they go and they've been praying and they pray, pray for this other couple, but still they're not blessed with any children. So they go back to the rabbi. And says, rabbi, we did your, you know, what you what you recommended. We went and we're praying and praying and praying, praying for this other couple and there's uh, still nothing happening. So the rabbi says, you know, this only works if you truly and sincerely want that other couple to have children. It's not just about saying the words. It says, if you're praying for the other couple just because you want to have that child, then you're really just praying for yourself. So you know what? The couple says, you know what? Fine. They went and they decided that they're going to play fully. They're going to work on themselves. They really want that couple to have a child. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And guess what? They ended up having getting pregnant and having and having a, a child. And Rabbi David Asher goes and brings down. A woman sent them an email that she was a single mother of, tr- of three children. She was divorced for 10 years. And she says, you know, she trusted other people and they kept on failing her. And, you know, she was going through difficulties in her life. And she came to the point, she realized that, you know, I I learned, I'm just going to turn to God and speak to God directly. And she goes and she says in the email that, she merited to get engaged recently. And two days before that, her best friend, which is also divorced, also got engaged. And she goes and says, you know, we've been praying for each other. And this woman who's writing the email to Rabbi Asher, and she goes and says, I even asked, I even asked God, I want this woman to get married before me. That's the level that she really wanted it to happen. And later, after they got engaged, they found out they both started dating on exactly the same day. You want to know the fifth and final skula that we're going to speak about tonight for removing your suffering? That is pray for somebody else who's going through the same suffering that you're going through. Because when you, but, but you got to really mean it. You gotta really want them to get out of that. And when you do that, then whoever prays for somebody else, they get answered first. 
Let's do a quick recap and then we'll open up for any questions. We said there's five, we brought tonight five different skulot to get out of your suffering. Skulot number one is have mercy on others. We quoted a Gemara in Shabbat, page 151b. Whoever goes and has mercy on other people, they have mercy on you. Skulot number one, have mercy on other people. Have some compassion on other people. Skulot number two is increase your chesed, increase your kindness. The more that people depend on you, the more that you well, I should say the less likely that you will get punished. Because the more that people depend on you, they need you. And if you get punished, they suffer also. And maybe they don't deserve to get punished. So now, school number two is increase your chesed, increase your kindness, have other people depend on you for the good ways. School number three is emunah. When you, the power of emunah has a power to go and re- get you out of suffering and prevent suffering also. Live life as, a, as emunah. It's a win-win situation. You're living your life, a happy, a happy life, and you're also preventing problems from coming. Skula number four is the three words that we said, Davin, Davin, Davin. Pray, pray, pray. Pray and ask God to get you out of the suffering. And finally, the fifth one is pray for somebody else. Pray for somebody else who's going through that same suffering, who's going through that same difficulty. And with that, with these five skulot, may God help each and every single one of us that we, may we never have any suffering that I need to go through because we all checked off all these boxes and we have no need for it. And with that, we'll open up to any uh, questions. Okay. We have here some questions. Okay. You guys could uh, type in the questions. In regards, question number one, in regards to what you are saying about how we can avoid suffering. If other people are relying on us, suffering is often a tikkun for something and very much for our benefit. So if we interfere, then perhaps we'll prevent some, something that our soul really needs. So that's a good question. So the question is as follows, that if God does suffering, then there's a need for that suffering. So if we go and we're doing all this skulot, then it's going to prevent you know that suffering from happening. Maybe, maybe it's good for us. So the answer is, is that this skulot is a merit that that suffering, whatever benefit could have came out of it, you already received it from these skulot, from these good things that you did. Meaning that you don't need that suffering anymore. Because if obviously if you need it, you'll get it. But by doing this, it takes you out of the need for the suffering. And if it takes you out from the need of the suffering, then all of a sudden there was no benefit of that suffering. If there's no benefit of that suffering, then there's no suffering. Go on to the next question. Question number two. When we pray to God for a specific thing, are we supposed to daven for the same thing during each filah that we daven that day? Or should we daven some things by shachit, different things by mincha, and different things by avid? What is the best way to do it? So, if I understand this question, um, if I understand this concept, the, the question, then the, when we're supposed to, when you're praying for something, pray for something three times a day, a hundred times a day, don't say, okay, like for money, shachit. For health, mincha, and so on and so forth. No, you could pray for everything that you want every single day. And in fact, uh, you know, it's very important to know that when someone's going through, you know, something that they're praying for something, it's not only in shachit, mincha, and alvit that you could pray for it. You could also pray for it throughout the day. In fact, you could just be sitting in your car and praying to God, talking to God. God, please help me with X, Y, and Z. Help me with, you know, A, B, and C, and so on and so forth. Okay. Um, the, you know, we have here another question. It looks like this is the final question. Um, with the fifth skula, is it only with the same suffering? So the fifth skula that we mentioned was that pray for somebody else. Uh, somebody else is going through that, through that suffering. So the power of this skula is that, is that, yes, you're praying for somebody who's going through the same thing that you're going through. However, I'm very happy that you asked this question, that this is important that a person doesn't have to go through difficulties to go and pray for somebody else. Meaning that, let's say somebody is blessed with children, but they want to go and pray for somebody else with children, but they're thinking, you know what, like maybe I should put my prayers to somebody else, something that I, I don't want. No, when you go and you pray for something, even somebody else, even though you have it, that will give you tremendous amount of atzlachah and in the same things that you have. So it will help you with your children as well. So, yes, the skula specifically, you know, references something that you need as well. But it shouldn't, you know, be close to that. You should be, you know, praying for everybody and anybody for whatever it is that they uh, that they need. Okay, it looks like that was the. Oh no, we got another question. What about the high holidays? Um, I can't attend shul since my whole family is a health risk. So there is a concept of onus rechmanah patri, that if somebody is, um, you know, wanted to do something, but it's out of their ability to do it, it counted as if they did it. So if you, so let, let's try to understand this concept. If somebody goes and has the ability to do a good deed, 
and they don't do it, so they don't get reward for that good deed. And then sometimes they get punished for not doing that good deed. But let's say somebody wants to do a good deed, but they can't for reasons out of their control. I'm talking about real reasons. I'm not talking about like not in the mood. You know, like I'm talking about real reasons. If there's real reasons why your person can't do it, so then that's an honest. An honest accounts as if, you know, if you really want to do it and you couldn't do it, it counts as if you did it, so to speak. So um, obviously a person has to go and think about all their situations and say, okay, can I really not do it? Or do I really not want to do it? Am I looking for a way out? Obviously, there's a lot of factors to, to factor in over here. But at the end of the day, a person um, has to understand that God only accept, you know, wants us to do what we're capable of. More than that, God doesn't uh, you know, ask of us. Okay. Any other questions? Because it looks like we're uh, done with the questions. Okay. The question is a follow-up for that. Will I be judged badly if you didn't do something wrong? Meaning that you, it, it, meaning that if let's say you couldn't do a certain mitzvah, but because you couldn't do it, you don't get punished for that. That's not something you get punished for. So, for example, let's try to use an example. Um, during the Holocaust, let's say uh, the the you know the people I don't know couldn't do a lot of mitzvah. They couldn't let's say for example put on tefillin. The the people are not going to get punished for not putting on tefillin because they literally were not able to put on tefillin. And in fact, the Jewish people in the Holocaust that wanted to put on tefillin, that they had the desire to put on tefillin, but they didn't because they just didn't have the tefillin, they get rewarded as if they did it. So you don't get judged if you if you want to do something and you can't do it, you don't get judged because you didn't do it. You, you just physically can't do it. It's an honest. All right. And that looks like the final question. And with that, we will end Chazak Ubaruch. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.